1: China is poised to become the world's largest box office. What does that mean for the bright lights of Hollywood? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, Deputy Digital Editor at The Economist. Also coming up on today's show... Could this be the beginning of the end for dollar dominance?
2: Elements of US dysfunction probably play a role as well. The US political system doesn't respond to crises as well as it used to.
3: And is individualism holding society back? Financialization has encouraged and indeed sometimes forced the management of companies to drive their people into behaving unethically.
1: First up... Your job is to bring honour to the family. Disney has spent five years and $200 million on a new live-action adaptation of the classic animated adventure Mulan, due out on September 4th. Based on a Chinese legend, the story follows a young girl who takes her ageing father's place in the army to help fight off a foreign invasion. Ancestors... Please protect her. The company hopes it will win as many new fans in China as at home.
4: When they find out who you are, they will show you no mercy. I'm
2: Hua Mulan.
1: But the drama is not limited to the screen. The Chinese box office is poised to become the world's largest. And there is stiff competition from local champions as the popularity of homegrown films in China rises. Is this an opportunity for Hollywood, or could it be a showstopper?
4: China's box office has been on the most amazing streak. It's about 35 times bigger now than it was 15 years ago. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's media editor. If you look at just the sheer number of screens, you can see Chinese people now have much more opportunity to visit the cinema than they used to. So 15 years ago, China had about the same number of screens as the UK. Today, it's got about the same number as all of Europe and all of the United States put together, about 70,000 screens. So the growth there has just been astonishing. It means that audiences have got more chances to visit the movies. And when they get to the movies, Chinese studios are creating more films tailored specifically to their tastes.
1: And how's the rise of homegrown studios been
4: showing up at the Chinese box office? Well it's interesting that if you look at the Chinese top 10 today compared with 10 years ago it's really quite different. A decade ago the top 10 in China looked quite a lot like the top 10 in the United States or in Europe you know it was mostly Hollywood films with a, a few Chinese ones thrown in. Today, it's kind of the opposite. So last year, for example, eight of the top 10 films in China were Chinese made, just two squeaked in from Hollywood.
1: And what does this mean for Hollywood? Is it worried that it's struggling against homegrown films in the chinese market
4: the growth of the chinese market has been a fantastic bonus in recent years because it's just this great big new source of ticket buyers that's come as if from nowhere but now they are losing that share of that big new market and that is a worry for them internationally though i think they've got less to worry about because at the moment Chinese studios are still extremely bad at making films that sell overseas. They're doing very well at home. But you've got these films like uh, Wolf Warrior 2, which made something like 800 million dollars in China. Huge, huge amount of money and almost nothing abroad because the subject matter is just so tailored to Chinese audiences that foreign audiences just aren't really all that keen.
1: Now, this difference between what different audiences in different countries want, how is that showing up in the sorts of films that that America is making for the Chinese market. One thing that
4: Hollywood studios are doing is just making films that are designed to appeal more to Chinese audiences and I think Disney's Mulan is an example of that. But slightly less welcome thing that we're seeing is that Hollywood studios are having to in some cases change their output not to please Chinese audiences but to please Chinese censors who are rather sensitive about certain matters and that's why you're unlikely to see any films anytime soon about Tibet or the Uyghurs or any other hot issues in China. And even some smaller things are sometimes crossed out by Chinese censors. There was one example in Mission Impossible 3, where supposedly a a line of tatty looking laundry was cut from a scene in Shanghai, which was thought by censors to make Shanghai look like a a more down at heel place than it was.
1: Does this matter beyond Hollywood? I mean, in America, politically, at the moment, we've seen some tension between the Trump administration and Silicon Valley over their relationship with China. And we've seen other tensions over the tech industry. Is there a possibility of another dust up over soft power, whether between
4: the Trump administration, and Hollywood or between the Trump administration and China? Yes, I think both of those are possible, actually. I mean, if you look in the United States just a few weeks ago, the Attorney General criticised Hollywood for kowtowing to Chinese censors. And there's an interesting sort of alliance going on between people on the sort of American nationalistic right, and also at the same time, people on the more liberal leaning sort of free speech side of things who are both concerned about the way in which Hollywood studios are subtly altering their output to please Chinese censors. For example Senator Ted Cruz has suggested that Hollywood studios that agree to censor their films should have the right to work with the American Department of Defense withdrawn. So lots of studios need to film with, you know, battleships and aircraft and all that kind of thing. He's saying that they should not be allowed to do that if they cooperate with censors. Pan America, which is a sort of free speech organization, has suggested that studios which find themselves being asked to carry out censorship should at least be transparent about it and say what they've changed. And that most importantly, they should make sure that the version of the movie that the rest of the world sees is the uncensored version rather than the censored version that China demanded. But it's hard to know quite what studios should do about this because they face a commercial imperative to make as much money as they can. And, you know, they can't ignore this Chinese market, which is now as big as the American market. And at the same time, the American government, although it might want to put its foot down and start bossing the studios around, it needs to be mindful that the more it does that, the more it may actually come to resemble China if it's telling studios what they can and can't make. So it's a conundrum. And I think it's uh, just another result of this enormous new Chinese market and the influence that it's having on the products that people in the West get to consume as well. Another big commercial theme in the movie business
1: over the past couple of years has been the shift away from the cinema and towards home streaming. And of course, that's been accelerated this year due to COVID-19 forcing cinemas to close all around the world. What do you think those two themes
4: will mean for the relationship between Hollywood and China? Well, this is something that could change the movie industry in all kinds of ways. And I think in China, it could in some ways have a bigger effect than it has in America, because In China, films make nearly all of their money at the box office. 80 to 90% of their revenues come from ticket sales in cinemas. And that's a very, very different business model from the one that American studios have. In the States, if Disney puts out a film like Mulan, it will hope that it will make plenty of money at the box office, but actually a film like that is going to make most of its money through other streams, whether that's licensing for TV or licensing for video games or selling merchandise. You know, you can already buy yourself a Mulan bow and arrow set on the Disney shop online, you know, all of this stuff. And so if, the box office becomes less important, then that's going to have a bigger impact in China because in China, uh, the box office is the source of uh, the vast, vast majority of the revenue that these movies currently make. I think it could also have a a sort of political impact as well because the box office, the cinema is still, even in China, a relatively sort of global place. If you go to a cinema in China, you can see films made in America and they might be censored a bit, but you you can still... Consume the same content that people might be consuming in New York or London up to a point. On TV, it's a slightly different story. If you turn on a TV in China, you can't get Netflix, you can't get Disney Plus, which is Disney's streaming service. And by the same token, in the United States, people aren't watching. Chinese streaming services. And so if media consumption moves away from the cinema and towards streaming, which is what seems to be happening, I think you're going to have a situation where audiences in America and China are seeing ever more different things. There's going to be less shared cultural consumption, which is going to have an interesting effect, I think, on on the way in which Chinese and American people come to see the world even more differently than they currently do. Hollywood and China, a heady tale of money and politics someone should make a film about it.
1: Tom Waywright, thank you very much. Thank you. And for a deeper dive on the battle for the box office, read Tom's story in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. To subscribe, go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory deal. That's economist.com slash podcast
0: offer, and the link is in the show notes.
1: Next, it's been an ugly summer for America and the dollar. The greenback sits at the centre of the world economy, helping to grease the wheels of international trade. But its value has sunk to its lowest in two years and stayed there for weeks, while the euro, gold and even bitcoin have soared. New data from the Central Bank of Russia shows that that country now receives more euros than dollars for its exports to China. How did the dollar first come to dominate so completely? And how serious is the current challenge to its position? Samaya Keynes is our trade and globalisation editor, and Ryan Avent is our free exchange columnist. Welcome, both of you.
5: Hello. Hi, Patrick.
1: Can you put into context for our listeners just how significant is the dollar in international finance and international trade.
5: The dollar has lots and lots of different roles, but one of the ones I've been really interested in recently is its role as an invoicing currency. So that's when you do trade, which currency do you use to actually price the imports and the exports? So essentially, the data suggests that between 1999 and 2014, although the US accounted for you know, only around 10% of exports, the dollar was actually used to invoice around 40% of trade. So it's got a massively outsized role.
2: It's also a linchpin of the global monetary system. So more than half of official foreign exchange reserves are dollar denominated. And banks end up using it for about half of all their cross-border claims. And so what happens with the dollar has a significant effect on the monetary pressures facing countries all around the world.
1: Samaya, why is it so important in international trade?
5: The dollar is very important for emerging markets. Their share in international trade has massively grown over the past few decades. And so that has been a really major contributor to the dollar's importance.
1: Right. And Ryan, what about its importance as a reserve currency? Because this has been its position historically now for many decades.
2: Yeah, nearly a century, really. It's been the major reserve currency issuer since roughly the 1940s. The role of the United States in the global economy, particularly in the first half of the 20th century, was a big force pushing the dollar toward dominance because the US was a major exporter and accounted for a huge share of global output. Then, of course, it helped establish the post-war monetary framework under Bretton Woods through a sort of dominant superpower position. And that really laid the groundwork for the past 70 years of global economic history in which the dollar has played such a fundamental role.
1: From time to time, and this is one of those times, people start to question the dominance of the dollar, either in international trade or is a reserve currency, or both. And it seems as if we're at one of those moments now. Why are people talking about this again right now?
2: Well, there's a few things going on, I think. One is the fact that over the past few decades, the US share of global trade and exports has been declining as emerging markets have grown rapidly, and especially China. I think elements of U.S. dysfunction probably play a role as well. The U.S. political system doesn't respond to crises as well as it used to. Debt has grown substantially since the turn of the millennium. And then I think there's other sorts of things going on as well. The US habit of using its dollar position as a punitive weapon in geopolitical disputes, that's something that is annoying to a lot of emerging markets. And so you have countries like Russia and China actively working to try to limit their dependence on the US dollar system.
1: Can I ask both of you, obviously, you know, symbolically, it looks great for America that its currency is in effect the, the global currency. But Does America actually get anything out of this? I mean, what privileges does it bring?
2: Well, the sort of historical view on this is that it gives it a degree of monetary freedom that other economies don't have. It allows it to borrow more cheaply because the fact that it's a reserve currency means that people have to buy dollar assets to keep them as reserves. And so that holds down U.S. interest rates the fact that people have to buy U.S. treasuries no matter how poorly the interest rates are, uh, no matter how low the yields are, the U.S. ends up earning uh, a better return on its international assets than it otherwise would. And then, of course, it gives it some geopolitical power. You know, the ability to kind of cut countries off from the global payment system is a pretty big weapon to wield. Then I think, you know, there are also ways in which it can be a drag on the economy and something which constrains balanced economic growth within the U.S.
5: There's also a different kind of privileged insularity. The idea is that prices are set in dollars and prices are sticky. So if the American dollar falls in value, the price of American imports doesn't change over the short run, which is lovely for the consumers who still get to buy reasonably priced imports. Similarly for exports, they're priced in dollars, so a depreciation means they're immediately more competitive on foreign markets.
1: Periodically, other currencies or the owners of other currencies have their eye on America's crown, on the dollar's crown. You mentioned the euro. And at the moment, people are talking more about the Chinese currency, the yuan or the renminbi. From a Chinese perspective, are they going through all these fine economic theoretical calculations that, that you two have just been expounding? Or is this really about geopolitics? Is it really about projecting the power of China through the currency?
5: I think it's probably a bit of both, right? The power that comes with being the world's reserve currency also comes with economic power and freedom and kind of various flexibilities that the Chinese don't have. I mean, I would say that I don't think that the renminbi is anywhere close to even vaguely challenging the dollar. I think the euro is much, much closer and even that's, you know, not particularly close. Am I being too harsh on the euro?
2: No, you're not being too harsh. I mean, in terms of the openness of European markets, the depth of European markets, it is well ahead of China. You know, it's sort of a whose politics do you think are more brittle over the you know, medium run? And, and that's a hard question to, to answer. But I would also agree that probably over the next 20 years, the euro's prospects are better than the renminbi's. That's kind of an extraordinary thing to say after the 20 years we've just had, isn't it? But that would be my bet.
1: Now, just to wind up, you two, we've talked about peak dollar on money talks before. I think I know the answer to this, but what do you think about the future status of the dollar? Do you think the dollar is going to stay king for you know, 10 years, 20 years? What do you think? Are we at peak dollar?
2: So my perspective is that as long as the US continues to sort of play the geopolitical role that it's played over the past 70 years, even in a diminished way, the dollar will continue to have a dominant position. In the event that it ceases to play that role, What happens with the dollar probably ends up being a secondary concern relative to what happens with everything else, Uh, much in the way that kind of the big story of the 1920s and 30s wasn't really sterling, losing its dominance. It was other things.
5: Yeah, I think if we can take anything away from this most recent crisis with COVID, it was that the Fed stepped up. Right. And the Fed showed its willingness to just sort of spray the world with liquidity while it's still willing to do that and able to do that. I don't see the dollar being challenged in the next 10 years and maybe even longer. But I hate making predictions. Um, So don't push me further.
1: (laughs) Samir Keynes, Ryan Avent, thank you both very much.
5: Thank you. Thank you.
1: And finally, it was back in 1987, in the era of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, that the film Wall Street came out. The pinstriped anti-hero Gordon Gekko, played by Michael Douglas, delivered this famous line.
0: Greed, for lack of a better word, is good.
1: That was satire of course, but ever since many have accepted the counterintuitive consensus of market capitalism that the self-interested entrepreneur pursues his own profit, with the result ultimately benefiting society at large. But what if the opposite is true? And it's this very individualism that is perpetuating inequality, disrupting democracy and holding societies back.
3: That withering view of humans as greedy, selfish and lazy, reluctant to work, those instincts are part of all of us, but we're much, much more than just those instincts. Paul Collier is a professor of economics and public
1: policy at Oxford University's Blavatnik School. He spoke to my fellow Money Talks presenter, Simon Long, about his new book, Greed is Dead, Politics After Individualism, which was co-written with another British economist, John
3: Kay. And what we mean by greed is dead is that the intellectual basis for thinking that greed is good is really no longer tenable. And is this an insight you've long held, or is it one that the pandemic has brought on? Oh, I think the pandemic has confirmed everything we're writing about. We will defeat COVID if we behave well towards others if we behave responsibly as members of a community, recognising our obligations to others. On the whole, in Europe, people have behaved with consideration towards others. Britain, and I think in America, have underestimated people's pro-sociality. We're hardwired through evolution to be pro-social.
6: And how do you incentivise a pro-social Society? Is it just that incentives are wrongly aligned, or is there a more fundamental problem there?
3: We've rewarded the wrong things. The pressures of financialization have created firms in which, instead of the purpose of the firm being defined by what it does, a drug company's purpose is surely to produce drugs that actually meet human needs. Instead, financialization has encouraged and indeed sometimes forced the management of companies to drive their people into behaving unethically.
6: And what do you see as the solution to that? I mean, how do you change the behaviour of the drugs companies?
3: We need to reverse that over placing the control of the firm in the hands of fund managers whose mode of behaviour is to maximise the quarterly returns and so fund managers have encouraged behaviours which are very short termist in chief executives and in turn have led to the, these ridiculous explosion in financial incentives for chief executives to increase quarterly profits so we've seen a corruption in behaviour from a system where trust can be placed mainly in ordinary people doing their jobs, to a system, a sort of economic man-type system, in which the power is placed at the top of the firm and the incentive structure is to conform with the instructions coming from the top.
6: That leads us to the political framework, I suppose. And it's clear you don't believe the United States or Britain Offer any sort of model at the moment, but are there countries that you look to where you think things are better organized?
3: If you look at all the indicators of well being, of trust, then the Scandinavian countries come out pretty well, and that's by building these dense webs of interpersonal obligations, caring for each other, mut- societies of mutuality, and they're less financialized. Companies have more sense of responsibility to their workforce, to the community in which they're based, and to their customers. Once you've got that sense of common purpose, you can push responsibility down to the people at the coalface of practical experience, and they have all the tacit knowledge which the top lacks. Systems work best where you've got a lot Of devolved authority. In devolving power down to the
6: community, is there a risk that you take away individual rights, that minorities end up suffering?
3: Our democracies have been inclined to emphasize the idea that different groups have different interests and then to give groups rights to protect their interests. And whilst that's true, it's a very diminished view of what a healthy democracy should be doing. Because a healthy society should be trying to move beyond individual interests and the interests of this group versus that group. A healthy society should be trying to forge common purposes and striving to meet those common purposes. And so we need to move wherever possible beyond the tensions of different interests towards the unifying force of striving for common purpose.
1: Thanks to Paul Collier and to Simon Long. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Before you go, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Patrick Lane. In London, this is The Economist.